salvation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. This is God's word. It's entirely true, and it's given to us in love. Let's pray together. Father, thank you. Thank you again for your word. Thank you for the book of Psalms that we've been able to walk through this summer, that you've made those available to us, and uh, to, to not only uh, to, to preach from, but also to, to use as our prayers throughout the week to uh, use it as a way in which we can evaluate even how we're feeling um, because the psalms carry so much emotion in them. So God, I pray again uh, this Sunday that you would meet us, uh, that you would speak to us from your word, and that you would give us ears to hear. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So it's something, that, uh, just having the privilege of, of, of getting paid to study the Bible, something I'm really thankful for every single week. And so there's things that come out within and just observations that you make. And this is, you know, 11 pages of notes up here is like the scratching the surface of Psalm 46, of anything that, that, that uh, I preach on. It's always scratching the surface. There's so much information. But one, but one thing that, that I did find about, with, just with the Psalms, just an observation, and you may have noticed it too, just last week we saw that, that uh, Saint Augustine, who is the you know a great uh, you know hero of the faith that we hold up, and you may have read his his confessions um, or, or or one of his other uh, other works. You know Psalm 32 was his favorite psalm in the Psalter. He had it etched on his wall um, as he was dying so that he could meditate on it. You know it's like how many of you have have psalms etched on your wall? Um, C.S. Lewis wrote a, a little booklet called the Reflection on the Psalms. The Psalms were meant a lot to him as, as a believer and what he, what he constantly went to. Tim Keller, who's, who's a hero of mine, uh, started a practice years ago where he read a psalm, reads a psalm a day and prays through that as well. And so just, just to, I highlight that to say like it's, the psalms are so important to us as the church, to you as an, as an individual Christian, and I'd encourage you um, to begin even walking through the psalms in some systematic way so that you can be refreshed like these, these uh, men and women uh, of old as well. And it's, it's, it's uh, also uh, our psalm today, Psalm 46, was actually uh, Martin Luther's favorite uh, psalm. And it's the psalm that he, that he used or that inspired him to write his famous hymn, uh, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And if Seth and I were a bit more organized, we would have been singing that hymn, but that's totally my fault. But, um, but you know the hymn. And uh, Luther, he was able to use this, this psalm as a reference point uh, for his hymn writing, but he also, he also used it as a source of, of comfort and strength in the midst of the pressures and the fears that he faced during the Reformation 
uh, era where he's the one who, who kicked it off. And so Luther, Luther had to do most of his work that he did, which, which was translating the scriptures um, so that the common person could understand them. He had to do most of that work in hiding because he had threats upon his life constantly. And so when he was feeling these pressures and during those moments where he was, uh, was sensing fear or, or things were seeming overwhelming in the work that he was performing, he would turn to his, his friend, uh, Philip Melanchthon, who was also a, an important figure in church history, and he would say to his friend Philip, Come, Philip, let's sing the 46th Psalm together. And so they sang this psalm, not because it had a good tune, but because it reminded them of who their God was. It brought them back to their, their reference point in life to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And so that's what I hope this psalm will do for us today, by reminding us or showing us three things that are true about God from this particular psalm. One is that God is your refuge. Two, God is your fortress. And three, God is your peace. Your refuge, your fortress, and your peace. So first, God's your refuge. The poet begins the psalm by declaring that God is our refuge and strength. It is a, he, said, he uses a, a plural term there to say this is corporately true. This is true about all of God's people. All who call on the name of the Lord and are saved, uh, this is true about you. That God is your refuge and strength. So the term refuge is used over and over again throughout the Psalter and throughout the, the Old Testament. It's, it's, it's a word that means a shelter from danger or from troubles. And if you're in God, the psalmist says that God is your refuge. So what that means is the danger is not not finding your refuge in God. Because if you are in God, the psalmist is telling you, your refuge is God. So the danger is not not finding your refuge in God. The danger is finding your refuge in other things beside God, or besides God. That you, that you forget that your refuge and your strength are found in the one true God. And so instead of finding your refuge there, or remembering that your refuge and strength are there, you find it in your bank account. Or you find it in your health. Or your family. Or your job. Or your good looks. Your intellect. A president or a political party. Or a philosophy or ideology that stands outside of the gospel. And that's where you find refuge. That's where you find your strength. But listen to the words of Isaiah chapter 28, verse 17. Isaiah says, or God says through Isaiah, And I will make justice the line, and righteousness the plumb line. So, so God is saying justice and righteousness are what I will measure your life according to. That's the plumb line. That's the line. And hail will sweep away the refuge of lies. And waters will overwhelm the shelter. 
So God is saying, through Isaiah, that anything else that you seek refuge in or try to take refuge in that is not God is a lie. And that one day, compared to the righteousness and justice of God in Christ, one day, all of those things will be swept away. Because what those things are doing is they tell you that, that they will keep you safe and secure in times of trouble, but, but what will happen eventually, and I don't care how much money you have in the bank, or what kind of job you have, or how strong your, your family uh, unit is, they will fail you every single time. It lies to you. Or, or another way we could put it, it's probably better to put it this way because those, those are objects, some, some of those are just, you know, uh, inanimate objects. They're not speaking to you, you know, uh, you know uh, they're not using, using any kind of uh, physical way in which to get at you. So they're just kind of lying dormant most of the time. And even if you put that kind of pressure on your family or a loved one, at some, most of the time they don't even realize that that's happening. So what you're really doing is you're lying to yourself about how these things can be your refuge and be your strength. It reminded me of the rich fool that, we, that Jesus talks about in his parable in Luke 12, where the rich fool says to himself, soul, so he's talking to himself, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. And what does God say about this man? He says, fool. You are a fool to be trusting in your riches and in the physical things of this world. Well, God, the psalmist also tells us that God is also your strength. So if you're in a storm, or a storm is approaching... You want to take refuge in something that can withstand whatever it is that the storm is going to bring. You want something that is strong. And the psalmist tells us that God, for the believer, is that strength. So Moses gives, us, uh, gives a perfect example of how God is the strength of his people in Exodus chapter 15. And you, you probably remember this story, but after God has delivered his people miraculously from the Egyptian army, which was a strong, powerful, dangerous, uh, evil, and cruel army. God miraculously delivers uh, all of his people from the Egyptian army. And, and not only that, they have no weapons. They have no way to defend themselves. They're not organized uh, as, as, a, as a military unit. And the Egyptian army is on their tails and the people are freaking out. God brings them through the Red Sea, parts it miraculously, gets the people on the other side, and then he crushes the Egyptian army. God delivers his people. God shows himself strong. And then after all of that, as they stand on the shores and watch the dead bodies float by, they sing this song which is an appropriate response to any time that God delivers you. They, sit, they sing the song. They say, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. 
the Lord is my strength and my song. And he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. He's the strength of his people. He's, his, he's your refuge. Always. And then also in verse 1 of Psalm 46, the psalmist tells us that he is a very present help in trouble. Now, there's a lot of ways you can go with that, depending on the language, and I had to rework this a little bit this morning, just looking at the language. Uh, but that, that phrase, and it might say it in your translation of, of the Scriptures, also means uh, well-proved in times of trouble, or, or found to be right in times of trouble. So what that means, what the psalmist is trying to, to help uh, God's people understand is that, and you'll, you see this in other parts of, of, in other psalms and in other parts of the Old Testament that we'll read here in just a second, is that the Lord, the Lord our God, the Lord your God, who is your refuge and strength, is always near to his people. He never leaves you. He never forsakes you. He is always with you. And the way that we know that is, be, is, is one, as is we look back in God's word, and we can see, if we want to look back just historically, because the Bible is, is, is also an accurate uh, depiction of history. These aren't just made up fairy tales. This is actual history. So we can look back in history and see the faithfulness of God being near his people. This is what the psalmist is saying here. He is well proved. We can, look, we can look back at it. We can see how he delivered, uh, delivered us from the Egyptians. We can see how he's done all of these miraculous works uh, in the midst of his people. He is well proved. He is found to be right every single time. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 7 through 9 uh, says this, for what, for what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us? Whenever we call upon him. And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? Only take care and keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen, and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Make them known to your children and your children's children. So God, in his character and in his acts, has a well-proved track record. God has never, never failed his people in all of history, and he never will. He is well-proved. He has been found faithful. So the ESV, we have to, we have to give credit to where credit's due. ESV, there's men and women much smarter than I who have translated these things. I can't, I'm not going to try to argue with them on this and say, well, this is a bad translation. I'm not going to do that. So there has to be a reason they put that there. And I think part of the reason they put um, that God is a very present help in trouble, which I actually like. I like that language. A very present help in trouble is I think that they want to communicate that, it, that, that one, you are always in the present. Even though we say things like, oh, you, you, know, you live in the past, 
Even if you live in the past in your mind, you are physically always in the present. We're all here present to get today together, and we will continue to be until this hour is over. So I think what the psalmist is trying to communicate here as well is that this means that God is always presently with you as well. That God is not, he, he is not playing, having to play catch up and having to go back uh, and kind of clean up your mess at times as you would uh, a, a small child where you're walking behind them and cleaning up their mess. God is always with you. Always present. A very present help in trouble. So what this means is God is not merely your temporary retreat where you go when you're, when you're feeling blue or, or need to get recharged so that you can enter back into the real world. He is much, much more. Because the psalmist is saying is that God is your eternal refuge. And can and will provide you strength in every circumstance, including the very worst that could happen to you. And David describes the very worst in verses 2 and 3. Look, look there with me. David says, therefore, therefore, sorry, it's not David. It's the sons of Korah. The sons of Korah say this. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its dwelling. So what the psalmist is saying here, even if the end of the world is upon you, the very worst that could happen. We, we make movies, there's probably a, one movie a year that comes out about the end of the world happening. Zombie apocalypse uh, or some sort of natural disaster that threatens to take out the entire world. Even if that were to happen, God is still with you. And that those whose, whose refuge of, is, is, is in God, the psalmist is saying, even if the end of the world comes, you have nothing to fear. Nothing to fear. God is your refuge, even when you're faced with total destruction. Now, I'm not predicting the end of the world anytime soon, so I'll let you know. I'll put it on Facebook. Um, but one thing is, you, whatever you might be experiencing right now that's difficult might feel like the end of the world to you, though. That, might be, that you might say, it cannot get any worse than this. And this, this promise is true for you right now, is that God is with you. That your refuge is found in Him. That He is present with you in whatever trouble that you are walking God is present with you. So David, or David, it's not David. And I have it in my notes. It's the sons of Korah, sorry. The psalm, and David's written a lot of psalms, so you can't, you got to give me that. So the psalmist here uses the imagery of, of water overwhelming mountains to paint this picture of the ultimate nightmare for God's people. And, the, and God's people, are, they know water, is, water has been part of their, 
part of their history, part of who they are as God's people, all they have to think about is, that has happened before. That happened to Noah. That happened to those people at that particular time. The water actually did overwhelm the mountains. We know that can happen. And so David uses, or uses that imagery of water overwhelming the mountains to paint this picture of the ultimate nightmare, or as we might probably say today, all hell is breaking loose. So in the New Testament, Paul reminds the church that just because one calls themselves Christian doesn't mean they are exempt to suffering. Just because you call yourself a Christian does not mean that life is going, is going to go well for you. And I don't care whatever prosperity gospel preacher that you've heard that says that those things will not happen or that's not possible. I'm just letting you know that's a lie. Because if that were true, then most of the Bible makes no sense to us. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 8, and 9, well, just to say this, that, that even though suffering may come on you, and it will come on you, and even though uh, you, you will uh, experiencing, experience all hell breaking loose in your life, that, that will happen eventually to you. Even though we're not exempt from suffering, it doesn't mean that we don't have a place to go in our suffering. The world tries to teach us that when we suffer, that we are just to kind of hang on for dear life and just kind of make it through. And if we can just make it through, then on the other side, we'll be, we'll be stronger for it. We'll be stronger people. But in the midst of it, there's nothing happening. We're just suffering. But as Christians, as God's people, we have a place to go in the midst of our suffering. We have a way in which to understand our suffering and to kind of frame it according to what God's Word tells us. So this is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 8-9, to the Corinthian church. He says, We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We're, per we're perplexed, but not driven to despair. So we're, we're looking around at the world and going, I don't know. I don't know what's going on. This, this, is, this is confusing to me. Why is this happening to me, but not driven to despair, even though we can't answer those questions? We're persecuted, but not forsaken. We're struck down, but we're not destroyed. Paul says that to the church. So this is, this is to you, Christian. Christian, this is, this is your great hope from Psalm 46 and also from, from Paul here in 2 Corinthians, that you are not going to be crushed by whatever it is that is troubling you. It will not crush you. You, you are not driven to, you won't be driven to despair by whatever it is that you can't answer at this particular moment. You won't be forsaken by God. He'll never do that. And you won't be destroyed even though at times it may feel like destruction is upon you. Why? Because of Psalm 46, verse 1. God is your refuge and strength, a well-proven help in trouble. He's done it before, he's doing it now, and he'll do it again in the future. The second thing that is true about God from this psalm is that he is your 
fortress. And this is where Luther gets his, his, the, 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 um, the language to his hymn is from these particular verses. But I think it's hard for us as Westerners to, to think of God as a fortress. We don't, have a fort- we don't live outside of a fortress, and Fort Gordon is not that kind of fortress that we're kind of thinking about there. Because if we tried to go seek refuge at Fort Gordon, they'd probably shoot us. Um, but the fortress in the psalmist day was a much different picture. It was, it, was, it was a place in which was mighty and strong. And if you lived outside of the fortress... Uh, you knew that if trouble came, which would be an opposing army that came to kill you, they knew where they could run for safety. They lived in the shadow of the fortress. And they could go inside and seek shelter and have their lives saved. So maybe you're a a Lord of the Rings fan like I am. Try to imagine Helm's Deep, that that, that whole scene in the Lord of the Rings movies or in the books or whatever, where the, the... the, the minuscule amount of people that, that are left in the human race, they flee to Helm's Deep. They flee to this great fortress to be protected from the oncoming armies. And so the psalmist goes into, uh, into a description of what it's like to have God as your fortress. Because we don't just live in the shadow of a fortress. The psalmist is telling us that God is our fortress. He is our fortress. So he describes it this way in verse 4. He says, There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. So one commentator observed and pointed out that I thought was really helpful. He said in verse 3, the poet uh, chooses to use a, a metaphor of untamed waters, a, uh, this, this raging, uncontrollable river that even overwhelms the mountain, thinking about a flood and, and rushing uh, violent waters that are just taking uh, buildings out, taking people out, and, and rising to the point where it is coming above the mountaintops. And then, in verse 4, the waters are now under control. A river whose streams make glad the city of God. So instead of this this chaos and fear that these waters were bringing, now these waters bring joy and safety. Why? Because the psalmist is saying that this river whose streams make glad the city of God is a symbol of of God's presence amongst his people, and God's presence assures the city's safety. That's what assures the city's safety, but it it not only assures the city's safety, which is God's people, it also assures your safety. When God is present with the believer, he or she has nothing to fear. Now, this does not mean that you, will, uh, that you won't ever have the feeling of fear. Fear will come upon you. We are human beings. We are on this side of, uh, of heaven. We are broken. Fear will come up upon you. But it does mean you have a way to frame your fear, like I said earlier. You have a, you have a hook in which to hang this on in your own heart. When fear comes upon you, you can remind yourself of the character of God that says, 
I am your fortress, and you have nothing to fear because of that. And so you can frame your fear. Instead of framing it with anxiety, you can frame it with the strength of God. So listen to Jesus' words to his disciples in John 14 as he prepares them for his departure. He says to them, Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Why does he say that? Well, because he told them previously this truth. The Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. So what this means is that the Father, God the Father, your Father, is giving you the eternal presence of himself in the Spirit to all who believe. So God, if you, are, if, you are a, if you are a believer in Christ, you have the eternal presence of God. And because of this reality, when you see pressures rising around you, when suffering seems greater than you can bear, when death is actually knocking at your door, you can sing with our poets, and you can sing with Martin Luther and Philip Melanchthon, a mighty fortress is our God. So I'd ask this question of you, or a few questions of you, or a couple actually. What, what is this for you? What are you dealing with right now that seems more than you can bear? What are you dealing with right now that is causing you to fear or be anxious? Let me just encourage you in the midst of, of, of your suffering or in the midst of your fear to run to your God who is your fortress. So a couple more uh, encouragements from verses 5 and 6. Verse 5 says, God in the mid- is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. So the psalmist shows us that the great security of the church consists in the simple fact that, that God himself dwells in the midst of her. That God is in the midst of this small gathering of believers called Christ the King Church. That God is with us. And because of that, the holy city will not be shaken simply because God dwells there and is always ready to help her. And then in verse 6, the psalmist says, The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice and the earth melts. And I think sometimes we can kind of look around our world and we can see that actually happening. We can see nations raging. We can see kingdoms tottering. And the psalmist tells us that all, that all God has to do is speak and the raging nations are no more. Which tells us that when humanity entered into the reality of the fall in Genesis 3, God did not cease to be in control. That, that, the, that the world was not just kind of set to spin 
uh, like, a, like you wind up a watch and you just kind of let it go, and then God will check in on it every now and again. No, God is still perfectly in control. Just as much as he was before the fall, God is still in control in the midst of what we see as chaos. God is in control, in control or, orchestrating his good and perfect plan, ultimately for his glory, but also for your good. God is in control of it. God is the one who makes glad the city of God. And in your gladness, you can rejoice that the God of your fathers has you. He has you in his hand. And you need not fear. So the final truth that we have about God in this text is that he is your peace. I think we are often told to, to seek peace uh, by looking within. So we, always, we have people telling us uh, to, 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 to seek our inner peace, um, something that we like to call it. You know, Oprah Winfrey is still kicking, and she is still uh, shouting this message of finding inner peace within and of yourself, not in God. And so for some reason, we believe if we can just focus hard enough, Peace will come to us. If we can, if we can meditate on, on whatever it is that brings us peace, that it will eventually come. But in this final stanza of the psalm, the poet invites his hearers to see where true peace actually comes from. So peace can come in one of two ways. It can come through a negotiated peace, or it can come from an imposed peace. Some of you military folks know what I'm talking about when I say that. So a negotiated peace or an imposed peace. So a negotiated peace would be drawing up agreements of peace between two opposing parties with negotiated terms that they all can agree on, and they say, we'll sign here on the dotted line, and we can all be at peace. So peace comes through a negotiation, but we also have imposed peace. So maybe you can imagine uh, D-Day during World War II when the Allied forces storm the beach of Normandy. And many are killed and many had to die for the sake of peace to be eventually imposed upon that part of the world. It's a negotiated peace and an imposed peace. Both are peace, even though they're both sought in different ways. Both are peace, but it's the second that we find in verses 8 and 9. In verses 8 and 9, the psalmist calls on his hearers to witness God's work, his work of desolation. He says, Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear he burns the chariots with fire. Now this seems counter in, a counterintuitive way towards peace. Especially when you take into account verse 10 that says, Be still and know that I am God. So that seems more in line with our idea of peace, doesn't it? Maybe even the inner peace I referred to Earlier, Maybe that's something that you kind of think about. Being still before God and knowing Him as God. 
But even here, the psalmist isn't talking about uh, a sort of contemplative path towards peace that you and I can walk down. It's not this retreat center in the, the peacefulness of, of the mountains or the woods. The psalmist is quoting God to communicate that he is actually saying to you, We're, you're at war with me. And this is what he's saying to, me, to you. Lay down your arms and surrender. Lay down your arms and surrender. Be still. And acknowledge that I am God. That's what God is saying to all of us. We hear a similar plea in Psalm 4, uh, verse 4, when, he, when uh, the psalmist tells us, Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Tim Keller says there is no more proper response to really seeing God as he is than to be still and adore. So what does that look like? Well, to be still means not to be anxious, not to be fretting, not to be complaining or boasting. So the only way in which we're able to get to a point like that where we're not doing any of those things, where we're not being anxious or fretting or, or, when, or complaining or boasting when, when troubles mount against us, the only way that we get to that point is by stopping, laying down our weapons, and looking at the greatness of who our God is. And as we reflect on what is true about God, His beauty, His majesty, his love, his power, it's then and only then that your heart will be still. Because you'll begin to understand who your God truly is. Now, if you're sitting there thinking, that's, that's, that's really silly. I don't, I don't need to acknowledge anything about this God you're speaking of. I'm doing quite well on my own, thank you, and I don't need to be bothered with this. Let me just direct your attention to the second part of verse 10, where God immediately follows up this beautiful line of be still and know that I am God with these terrifying lines. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Now let me just tell you, this is not mere hyperbole that the psalmist is using to say something like, uh, a lot of people will exalt God. It's not what the psalmist is trying to communicate here. The psalmist is, is, is not only exhorting the church, exhorting God's people to glorify God, but he is exhorting the entire world to yield to the God of Israel. So these are declarative statements that God is making here. God is saying, I will get, get the glory. I will get the glory from everyone. Not just my people, but everyone. So what he's saying is, you will either give, it, give me glory through a negotiated peace, where terms are reached, 
or an imposed peace. Paul recognizes this. He says this in Romans chapter 14, verses 10 through 12. He says, For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, and then he goes on to quote Isaiah 45, 23. As surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me. Every tongue will acknowledge God. So then, each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. That includes everyone. No one is exempt. Even if you're, you're the most hardened atheist in the world, you are not exempt from that. Everyone will give an account. Everyone will bow the knee. And everyone will acknowledge God with their tongue. So let us not put off what we know we must do. The Bible tells us today is the day of salvation. Repent and believe the gospel. Because if you don't surrender now, you will do so one day in spite of yourself. And though, it, though at that particular time, it will be for judgment rather than blessing. So you will either bow the knee and, and profess with your tongue that, 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 that God is King and that Jesus Christ is Lord over all of creation, and you will do that in praise and honor and worship, or you will do that out of judgment. One day you will recognize it. So I'm not going to say amen right there. That's a somber note. So let me leave, with you, leave you with some hope. Or let, let, me, let Martin Luther leave you with some hope. Because he does, in his hymn, uh, A Mighty Fortress in our, is Our God, in the second verse of that hymn, uh, Luther says this. He tells us of how we're able to surrender. Because we don't just surrender in our own strength. We don't just say, uh, say that I'm going to try to muster up enough um, good works and good deeds and, and try to be uh, nicer to the people in my life or, or try to give a little bit more money or, or do these things to try to get God to accept me. Uh, none of those things will work. None of those things will bring you peace with God. And this is what Luther says will. Did we in our own strength confide, our striving would be losing. If you're striving in your own strength, you're losing, Luther says. But we're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. You ask who that may be. Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord Sabbath, his name from age to age the same. And he must win the battle. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are our refuge you are our fortress. You are our peace. And so, God, I pray, even as we, as we leave this place in the next few moments, that we would take those truths with us. That whatever we face as we, as we leave this place uh, today, that we would remember always that you are always our, res our, our refuge. You're always present with us. You are always our fortress. And you are always our peace. And that you are the one that has come after us. You are the one that has 
that has uh, paid the ultimate price to buy us back. And so, God, I pray that we would remember who you are in that way and that we would rejoice day by day, moment by moment. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Every week we celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Um, if you don't have a, a, one of our little portable communion cups, go ahead and grab one of those. If you like, you, can, you have my permission to do that. Um, but just to be reminded again and again of what God has done for us in Christ, how He has shown Himself to be our refuge and our strength, how He has shown Himself to be our ever-present help in trouble, how He has, has, has reminded us that He is always faithful, and we can always look back, even if we have a hard time kind of looking back even further into the Old Testament, we can at least look back to the cross and say, God was faithful then, and he will continue to be faithful to me now in the present. And the Lord's Supper reminds us of that. So if you're a believer in Christ, if you can call on God as your refuge and strength because of what Christ has done, this is a table that has been set for you, and, and I encourage you to, to come to the table and to celebrate um, what it is that God has done for you in Christ. If you are with us and you are not a believer yet a believer, uh, this is still a time for you. It's not a time for you to take the supper, but it is a time for you to uh, even use the prayers that we have printed for you in our worship guide to begin a conversation with God if that's something that's new to you or, or unusual or you're just having trouble getting the words. We want you to have that as an opportunity to, uh, to, to, to go to God in a way um, that you may never have done before. And if you're sitting in this smelly cafeteria on a Sunday morning, that, that's a miracle in and of itself. So take note of that, that you're not here just kind of out of your own intuition. Um, God has brought you here. So use this as an opportunity to, to do business with him this morning. So hear now the words of institution.